I know I'm asking a lot on a short notice, but um, it says, uh, where it begins, your love's not fractured, it's not a troubled mind, it isn't anxious, it's not the restless kind. Your love's not passive, it's not disengaged, it's always present, it hangs on every word we say. Love keeps its promises, it keeps its word, it honors what's sacred, because its vows are good.
love as well, that you held nothing back. Father, you held nothing back. You gave your very best to adopt us, to purchase us, to bring us into your family, to bring us into relationship with you, to fracture, or to, to fix what was fractured, to fix what was broken, to reconcile what was separated. Jesus, we want your love for us, the truth of who you are, to be the foundation of everything that we do, everything that we believe, every action that we take. And so we ask you to heal us by your word as we study your word, to heal us as we reflect on what you did, that you would begin to heal us in our, our hearts, to heal our minds, to heal our emotions, to heal our bodies, to heal the broken places in us, God. We live in a broken world. We're broken people. So many things are far off from what you envisioned and what, what, uh, what you originally called good when you made us and what you called good. We're so far from that goodness. We want to return to your goodness, God. So set our lives right as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. I grabbed a little Bible with little handwriting, so I may struggle today. Um, I think I've got good eyesight, but I might need some of those glasses where you look down the end of your nose. Or just a bigger a Bible, a bigger font. Uh, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And um, as this week, as I was reading chapter 7, we're, we're really towards the end. Um, we're towards the end of this chapter. But we really have to jump back. We have to jump back. Um, and really, I want to go, I thought we'll go back to the beginning of chapter 7. Really, I want to go to the last verse of chapter 6. So we're in this uh, book of First Corinthians, it's a letter Paul had written to this church. He established his church. He moved on to continue to preach and evangelize. And word came to him about uh, problems in the church. Problems in the church. These people lived in a culture surrounded by immorality and idolatry. They were surrounded by a culture that was anti-Christ, um, that lived by a value system, and uh, that had a culture that had ways that had ideas that were counter to the ideas of biblical living, of Christian living, of following Christ. And um, their ideas got distorted. Their actions uh, were corrupted. And there were some crazy things going on. And so Paul really wrote this letter in response to uh, a corrective to some of those behaviors as well as uh, we... I believe, to answer some of the questions that they had. Um, I believe that because in verse 1, he says, now for the matters you wrote about. And then he goes on to address some of these issues. But usually when he addresses an issue, what he does is he lays the foundation of the gospel uh, to orient their thinking before he leads into the advice or the correction or the teaching that he gives them. And that's what I kind of see at the end of chapter 6, verse 20. And I mean, you could... You've got to stop somewhere because we could just go all the way back to the beginning of the book and read the whole thing. But in verse 20 of chapter 6, he says a simple phrase, a clause, I guess, it has a subject and a verb. You were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. What he's referencing here is the gospel. He's saying Jesus Christ lived and died. He lived a perfect life, and he died an undeserved death 
as a ransom for us to bring us into God's family, to set us right and to reconcile us with God. He's laying out the gospel here in that simple that simple clause. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He was talking about immorality, sexual immorality um, in these previous chapters. And he's saying the reason you're going to do or obey or follow these rules or these instructions that I give is out of a response of being purchased, bought by the blood of Christ. All right? That's the foundation. We don't follow rules to earn God's love. And there's a few more verses that stood out to me that Paul's laying out there that really I feel like uh, as I was reading it and I was considering my audience, thinking about you guys, seeing some of your faces, they didn't know who all would be here or who wouldn't be here, but thinking about you, these are desires I feel like uh, I have in my heart for you, I think the church has for you, that Christ has for you. In 1 Corinthians 7.15 at the end, uh, Paul's talking and he says, God has called you to live in peace. All right? God wants you and he has called you to live in peace. That's good news, right? God wants you to live in peace. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm not so naive that I don't realize that there's many of us who, at least in certain areas of our life, we don't have peace. But God has called you to live in peace. I don't know why it's doing that crackly. In verse uh, 17 of chapter 7, I think this kind of goes over it because we're going to talk about marriage and we're going to talk about singleness. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. Whatever situation you find yourself in, you are to live in that situation as a believer. What you need to know is that the situation that you find yourself in is not an excuse to not live as a follower of Jesus. Do you hear me? Whatever situation you're in, that situation does not give you an excuse not to live as a believer. Uh, I was thinking about it, and, and um, maybe in the context of, of singleness, which we'll discuss, uh, but I have this problem in my life. I have uh, a winner's mindset. Not a winner's mindset. A winner's, like whenever, like, you know, like a poet would write, whenever this gets to this situation, whenever this gets fixed, whenever this gets solved, then things will be better and I can really, you know, buckle down and work on this. I'll really be able to get this part of my life sorted out. I have a winner's situation or winner's mindset god doesn't want us to have that whatever situation you're in you should live as a believer in that situation does that ring a bell with anybody whenever the season gets over whenever my kids are grown whenever my kids go to school whenever uh you know i get over this sickness whenever this uh relationship problem resolves itself whenever i get through this problem I have, whenever I find this new job, whenever my money problems get sorted out, whenever these things happen, then I will follow Jesus. Okay? A winner's, winner's mindset. God doesn't want us to have that. Whatever situation you're in, 
1 Corinthians 7, 17. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. So whatever you're facing, whatever the condition, the state, the status, the situation, you are to live as a believer. That's as someone who believes that God is, that he's good, that he's powerful, that he's uh, our Lord, and that he is to be obeyed, and that his ways are right, and his ways are good, and his ways are beneficial. Your situation is not your excuse. Right now, right now, despite whatever problem, situation, sickness, relationship status, career situation, anything, stage of life, you are to live as a believer. You're to walk with God as a believer. In 1 Corinthians 7.32, uh, Paul makes another statement. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. That's good news. I want to be free from anxieties. You guys want to be free from anxieties? God wants us to, be, to live in peace. He wants us to be free from anxieties. He wants us to live as a believer. Whatever situation we're in, we're empowered to follow him. Now, if we're in a situation that's sinful, we're called to flee. If we're in a situation that's evil or corrupt or is imminently uh, dangerous, we can flee those situations. We're to take courage. We're to, to take courage, trust God, and move ourselves away from them. But if we're in just circumstances that are less than favorable to us, they're not an excuse not to follow God. All of that and, and the idea that we're bought at a price, the gospel, overarches the conversation that Paul's about to have with us in chapter 7. All right? You understand the starting point? Those are the parameters of our discussion. And so we're going to talk about marriage, and we're going to talk about singleness. Um, and so uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. And so I guess I, what I, when I say whatever situation you're in, you know, God wants our lives to look more like his and to move more towards his ideal. Just because uh, there are circumstances that we're in that aren't perfect, it doesn't mean that that's what God wants. He wants us to live as believers in those circumstances and actively partner with him following his word to move more towards his ideal. Right? Okay? And so this first part of this verse, there may be some difficult conversations, some transparency, some openness, some honesty, and some hard work that will begin as we read these scriptures. If you looked ahead, you might say, oh boy. Now for the matters you wrote about, Paul says, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Okay? Uh, I like the New King James Version. Um, in verse 1 it says, Concerning the things which you wrote me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. 
that's how it, it words that. That's more kid-friendly for sure. So, um, uh, and so they're addressing, they're bringing these issues to him. There was corruption and immorality in the Corinthians. There were uh, temple prostitutes in the pagan religions. And, and there were some in the church that were still visiting those temples and, and uh, living in that old lifestyle. And it seems that there were some people who, who realized the dangers of sexual immorality and the, uh, you know, it's like the, the, the urges and the temptations, the desires that a person has uh, are so powerful that they'd made the decision that celibacy was the best answer. And not only that, many, some of those people were married and decided that celibacy was the best answer. Paul's addressing this. He's saying, if you're single... It's, he's going to elaborate on this in the letter. It's good not to touch a woman. It's good to abstain. It's good to be celibate. If you're able to maintain that lifestyle with integrity, that's a good thing. If you're married, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. <coughs> he's saying if you can do it, it's a good thing. He goes on to say, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. If you're not able to do it, it's not wrong or a bad thing. If you're not able to live a pure celibate life, it's not a bad thing to be married. In fact, if we look at Genesis, the first thing that God said it wasn't good, he said it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And so uh, one of the commentators I read here, he asked the question, he said, why would Corinthian Christians suggest complete celibacy? which is what they mean by a man not touch a woman. They probably figured that if sexual immorality was such a danger, then one could be more pure by abstaining from sex altogether, even in marriage. And it goes on to say, uh, this guy Hodge said, the idea that marriage was a less holy state than celibacy naturally led to the conclusion that married persons ought to separate, and it soon to become regarded as an evidence of imminent spirituality when such a separation was final. So they were getting divorced so that they could focus on God and live these celibate lives. They were, they were doing things they ought not to do. We get ideas. Uh, if something's bad, we want to go to an extreme to avoid it, and then we make bad decisions in order to avoid that. We can't be motivated by fear. We can't be motivated by uh, a terror in an attempt to avoid sin. We're so afraid of this certain sin that we go to this extreme, and we're not even looking at God. We're looking at the sin, and we're trying to, get as far away from it as we can, and we're not walking the narrow road that Christ has called us to walk, our eyes fixed on him. <coughs> and I thought this was, uh, this was, uh, let me find this here. <coughs> you have to give me a second, I'm sorry. Oh, I think we've got it on my notes up here. So, <coughs> I'll go on. So, He's saying, uh, and I like the New King James Version of verse 3. He says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. And likewise also the wife to her husband. That's kind of a nice way to put it, isn't it? Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. When I was reading in the uh, Amplified Bible, and it says that... Um, you know, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body. It, it included in there in brackets, exclusive authority. 
Now, I think uh, this, is, this idea requires a tenderness and a sensitivity and obviously a walking with God because these ideas can be abused. These ideas can be abused. And Paul's saying if you're not able to control your urges, then you should get married. He's not saying that's the foundation for marriage. It's like, well, I couldn't control myself, so I went and got a wife. You know, you tell your wife that, like, you know, it's probably not going to win her over. It's not going to get you any brownie points. We don't include that really in our vows. It's not a romantic notion. He's saying, he's not saying this is the foundation for marriage. Well, you can't control yourself. Well, go get you, you know, go get your wife to be there and help you out with that. The foundation for marriage is found in Genesis. And uh, I want to turn there because... um, Because we need to know. We need to know these things. And we need to know scripture. And it goes back to creation. In uh, Genesis 1, verses 27, it says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All right? So God made mankind, the whole of people in his image, and he distinctly made males and females. Now, we understand male and female are different, right? They have different tendencies, different character traits, uh, apart from the obvious uh, anatomy differences. Males and females are different, and yet they're distinctly made in the image of God, uniquely. And in in those differences, they reflect different uh, aspects of the image of God. And what we see also in Genesis... in verse chapter 2, verse 24, he says, For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, and the two become one flesh. Uh, he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh. There's the concept of leave, cleave, become one flesh. Uh, there's, a, there's a man and a woman. They distinctly and uniquely um, represent aspects of the image of God. They reflect the image of God. And as they come together as one, they bring those distinctiveness, th- that distinctiveness and those differences, and they form a family. They form a unit, and out of that, they become one flesh, which produces offspring. God created and designed a family to come together, and that m- husband and wife relationship, which that covenant then creates offspring, and those children, the first idea of the image of God they see is the interplay in this relationship in the covenant of the husband and wife. Now, um, the families come under attack. Some people in our society want to disregard it or say it's irrelevant or even vilify it. Uh, We have a term called two-parent privilege in our society, which uh, is a little bit cynical but actually recognizes that what, what research tells us is the safest and best place for children to be raised is with their mother and their father. Absolutely. The best results, the best outcomes come from that. God created it, and he called it good, and we know that. And that relationship, that covenant of a husband and wife, is meant to be fruitful and multiply. God spoke that over them, did he not? He said, be fruitful and multiply. When God speaks something over us, it's a calling, but I also believe it's an impartation. He gave us urges to fulfill that. He gave us urges to fulfill that. All right? I don't know if you know that. Wives, you might not know that, but there's an urge in your husband to be 
uh, fruitful and multiply, to fulfill that command, right? And while it might be inconvenient, it's not evil, all right? I appreciate Krista laughing. (laughs) All right, sorry. All right. Uh, And in fact, it's a blessed and beautiful and a good thing. That intimacy, uh, that that is something that's powerful. You know, um, I guess humans have a tendency to, uh, you know, we're afraid of powerful things. We want to put extra barriers and limits around it. Um, And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They're saying, this thing, this urge is so powerful that we're going to eliminate it from our lives altogether as much as possible. Or we're going to make excuses for when it gets out of control. And neither of those are acceptable. We're not going to, in the context of marriage, right? It's acceptable, and it's a good thing if you choose to live a a celibate single life, right? If you're living a life uh, of singleness that's not celibate, you're not following, uh, you're not following the Lord. You're not following the Bible. All right? You with me? You follow me? Am I making sense? All right? Am I making it a little bit awkward? I'm just okay. Um, so let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have exclusive, I'll add that word, or it's as authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And I would say this extends more than this, this aspect of relationships. You know, why or husbands, you don't have exclusive authority over your own body, um, if your wife is nudging you to get off the couch and go to work and help provide for the family, you don't have exclusive authority to your body. You probably need to, you probably need to do that. You probably need to listen to her, right? You need to examine it, study it, and then go to work and provide for the family. All right? Um, and he goes on to say, uh, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. All right. I was reading this. and I was thinking, uh, you know, like I want a love life that's so vibrant that the only thing that interrupts it is fasting and prayer. And I want a prayer life so vibrant that I'm willing to interrupt my love life in order to pursue it. You know, that's like peak uh, healthy Christian marriage, I think, you know, uh, and I I mean, people don't expose their secrets or divulge their secrets, so I don't know anybody that lives this out. But uh, your, your, your love life is to be so vibrant that the only thing that interrupts it is you take a season to prayer, and then you come back together. And it doesn't say how you measure that, if that's like minutes or days or weeks or months or whatever. But he's saying that's, that's what's allowed to come between this union. That's what's acceptable. And what does he say immediately after that? And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. He's saying, I'm not commanding that you have to take a prayer break in your marital love life. I'm just saying this is a, a concession. But he says, come together so that Satan doesn't tempt you because of a lack of self-control. There's a protection in in a healthy marriage relationship that protects the members from the work of Satan. 
I was thinking about this, and uh, I was thinking about gardening. Maybe that's a weird, uh, you know, weird segue. Like when you think about these things, or you don't, maybe you don't think about gardening. Um, but it, when you till over ground, I was thinking in the terms of you reap what you sow in relationships. We reap what we sow, but if we don't sow, we might reap, but we have no control over what we reap, and we're not likely to enjoy the fruits of what we reap. If you have a garden, let's say you turn over soil, right? You turn over bare soil, and you just let it sit there. Is it just going to stay bare soil forever? Things are going to grow. Things are going to grow. You know, if you're a good gardener, which I'm not, but you have successive plantings, and you have, uh, you know, crop rotations, you have things that are growing and covering and providing shade, and when those plants get big enough, they, you don't really even have to, to hoe them or weed them anymore because they block the sun and they don't let, let weeds grow. And sometimes you put cover crop down. You have things growing, right? You're careful that there's not a void or a vacuum. Does that make sense? Uh, a good farmer does this. You're careful that there's not an empty space because things can grow there that you don't want to grow. Are you following me? And so you, in your relationship, in your marriage, you don't want, uh, was it, I think it was Aristotle and uh, Mr. Sturgeon, my chemistry teacher, who used to say, nature abhors a vacuum. Nature hates a vacuum. When there's a void, when there's an emptiness, uh, th- there's, it's going to be filled. Are you tracking with me? And in a marriage relationship, if there's an emptiness, if there's a vacuum, if there's a void there, um, you're going to have to work day and night so that weeds don't grow. Birds don't come overhead and drop some seeds. Something sprouts up, and pretty soon things grow out of hand. There's boundaries and there's, there's uh, parameters to a relationship that allow it to flourish. Now, I know this is a very complicated issue. We have, um, you know, people have health concerns. They have physical conditions. We have uh, differences in, um, I guess you could use the term libido, right? There's, there's differences that exist. And, and uh, what's interesting, and maybe I, I won't expound on this too much, but our society, the things that our society produces, the, the actual products, uh, BPAs. You guys know what BPAs are? Phthalates plastic that's in our environment plastic pieces like tiny little plastic pieces are getting into all of our food into our water uh it's into um it's it just it's it's everywhere and we're they're what's called endocrine disrupting chemicals and they're affecting our hormones they're affecting our endocrine system and they're shown to reduce um fertility they're shown to reduce uh libido i don't know what another word for that is um, a synonym for that. They're shown to reduce uh, testosterone in men and young boys. If they're, they're shown to be uh, ef- especially affect young kids in utero that are in their mother's belly. And these things are everywhere. And it's not just these phthalates, these plastics, it's these chemicals. Okay? What I'm saying is there's, I think we're going to see, uh, and not to mention, you know, things you can see on the internet, the access of our phones, and, and, and uh, living in digital worlds, and, and all these things are going to affect, um, well, it'll affect fertility and uh, reproduction, but it also affects our health in that department. And so I'm saying 
there's complicated factors. There, there's going to be a discrepancy, and it could go either way. You know, maybe the husband, the, the husband has a, a low urge, low desire, and the wife um, has strong desires. There's going to be a discrepancy, and these things need to be fleshed out in a marriage. But we need to look at Scripture, and we need to do the hard work to live uh, in a healthy way according to the Lord. And if we don't, we may give Satan a foothold to work in our family. You know, it's a powerful thing. When I, I, uh, you know, I married my wife, I made a decision that she alone would be, um, my, she alone was my choice for, that, for the expression of that part of my life. I've limited myself to my wife. And that's a, a powerful responsibility, but it's, it's also a burden. It's not something to be taken lightly. And in the same way, she's limited her options to me in many ways, you know, as a provider for the household, as a father to the children. Um, and we need to take these responsibilities and we need to go and do battle against uh, the temptations and the struggles that we have. And we need to know that in whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever our situation is, we need to fight to live up to God's ideals, right? I'm not saying it's easy for everybody. I'm not saying it's convenient. I'm not saying we don't have real problems and real struggles and real uh, difficulties. But I want you to live in peace. I want you to live free from anxieties. I want you to live uh, as a believer in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. And I, w- I would love if God would grant us all Whatever situation we're in, we would just walk in the vibrancy and the abundant life that God envisioned in that garden when he made man and woman in his image. I want that for your marriage. If you're single, I want you to walk in the the abundance of what we sang in that relationship with Christ. If you're looking for a spouse, I want you to find that. All right, is this kind of awkward or I think it's relevant. We've got to protect our families. We've got to protect our marriages. We have to honor uh, the commitments and the responsibilities that we've taken on. All right. Uh, so I'm going to read some more of Paul's words, I guess. And, uh, and then I want to get to the end of that of the chapter. And I apologize. I always mean to set my alarm and keep myself reined in. Um, Okay, in verse 7, Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am, meaning at this point in his life he was single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than burn with passion. To the married, I give this command. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. 
Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Don't underestimate if you're a believing spouse with an unbelieving spouse. Don't underestimate the power that your presence has in your family. And Paul's saying if your spouse will remain with you, then stay married to them. Stay married to them. But if the unbeliever leaves, this is verse 15, the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. And this is where he says, God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He's saying your presence, your Christian presence, and the, the, the sweetness of your personality, make sure that's, that's the case. The sweetness that comes out of your personality as you follow Christ may win over an unbelieving spouse. I'm going to skip down to verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Are you engaged? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something or engage in commerce as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. He's living in perilous times, a unique season in the church, the spread of the gospel, the expansion. And he's saying you ought to be concerned and, and fulfilled and, and occupied with the things of the Lord. Verse 32 he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. And I think this is Paul's goal for us, that we would live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So he's speaking there to those of us that or those of you who are single, he's saying you have a unique opportunity to live in an undivided way in devotion to the Lord. If you get married, he says, you're going to have uh, many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you those. Uh, a lot of times, you know, we live in that whenever that whenever state, whenever this happens. So we think. Uh, we look at marriage, if you're single, you look at marriage and you only see the benefits and you don't see the responsibilities and the challenges, right? And when you're single, you're able in a unique way, whether that's a lifelong commitment or situation or that's a seasonal commitment, you're able to be devoted and dedicated to the Lord. Now, while I believe, I don't know the statistics on it, most people will end up getting married. At some point in their life, it doesn't mean that you're second class or that you're less than or, uh, you know, you have something like you're not quite fully there yet or you haven't arrived. 
if you're a single unmarried person. It doesn't mean that at all. Paul is actually saying you have a unique and special state of life that you're able to serve the Lord. And I think that goes to uh, what he said in in verse 17. Whatever situation, whatever uh, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God had called them. So if you're single and you want to get married, that's fine. If you're single and you're not sure, serve the Lord in that situation. Your situation is not as an excuse to say, whenever this happens, then I'll really serve God. You can serve him in a right way. You can live in a right way with undivided devotion to the Lord. So I think the snapshot of where we are right now, as we examine our lives, God wants us to live fully undivided in our devotion to him. If there's sinful things going on in your life, you're to flee. You're to run away. You're to escape that situation. But if there's struggles and trials and difficulties that you're walking through, you're not to use that as an excuse to not love God and love people. You follow me? And so if I've today taken a, maybe ripped off a Band-Aid or scratched at a scab, something that's painful and difficult in your life, I just want to encourage you to dive in and seek the Lord, maybe for restoration, for reconciliation, for health and healing in your relationships. I want you to have vibrant relationships. I want you to have abundant life. If you're single here today, I want you to have the abundant life that Christ promises. If you're married here today, I want you to have the abundant life that Jesus promised us. If you have young kids and you're starting your family and you're stressed out and you're overwhelmed, you can have the abundant life that Jesus promised. If your kids are fleeing the nest and and you're looking at a new stage of life that you don't know how this is going to work out, the abundant life that Jesus offers is there for you. We need to see his his health, his his ideal, what God created us to be. We need to have a passion to see that permeate every aspect of our lives. You follow me? Okay, I hope I wasn't like a rambling fool up here. At least I read a lot of the Bible, so that part we know is pretty good. Really good, right? Um, and so I'm going to pray for you. So Lord, despite the messenger, despite the guy up here who maybe may or may not make sense or may or may not be on point, uh, your word is relevant. And we see our society... Um, drifting we see our society drifting and as a consequence we see people suffering from not believing you not believing your word not following you and not following your word we see pain and we see hurting we see things that aren't right that aren't well we see things that aren't uh, operating in shalom, the wellness, the well-being, the peace that you, you offer us. We ask that things would be set right. When you created the world, you called it good. You established things and you called them good. And there are voices in our world that 
that attack those good things. You created marriage. You created families. You established it. You created our bodies and gave them their function. And you called it good. In our world, the enemy wants to corrupt those things. Return us to a right life, a right way of living, and a way of living that's undivided in our devotion to you. We pray for healing. We pray that we would have the courage and the strength to start the long process of untangling the things that are twisted, of straightening the things that are crooked, of purifying the things that are corrupted. And we ask perseverance and the power of your Holy Spirit to pursue those things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have uh, communion in different places around the building and we're remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're remembering his sacrifice that he made for us dying on the cross. Take those. We remember the scripture that says, by his stripes, we are healed. And we ask Jesus to heal us relationally, emotionally, he can heal our systems in our body, our, our hormones, he can heal our minds, our thought processes, our worldviews, he can heal our physical bodies, he can heal the corrupted places by sin, and we're taking that in faith and believing that he's doing that.